This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Build a mentality in that dressing room that's powerful, strong, made them feel like they're unbeatable. What a coach. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. We're off the ball, it's football, it's BFM, it's Monday. And we're going to be talking with our three pundits today on a host of issues, including transfers, Frank Lampard goes to Everton, Africa Cup of Nations, South American World Cup qualifiers, and if we're lucky, if we have time, that all-important listeners' questions section. Let questions sent by you, the listener. Our three pundits this week are... Um, in, I was going to say alphabetical order, but I think I've forgotten my alphabet. But let's begin with Nicholas Anil. Hi, Cam. Good to be back. It's great to have you back. Uh, I hope your uh, dentist work went well. Yep, I'm speaking properly, so all went well so far. Thank God. Excellent. And we have, um, he's sitting in a car, actually. It's Kishanan Sundaresan. <laughs> you can't expose me like that, Cam. What's up? What's up? Good to be back, guys. <laughs> great to have you. And we have our, he's, it's his second time now. He had a great debut and he is Sean Maholtra. Hey, everyone. It's great to be back. Also, happy Chinese New Year to everyone. And Sean, have the uh, the hits on your podcast just gone through the roof since you've been on, uh, <laughs> haven't they? Oh, yeah. It's been, it's been all right. It's been all right. It's been the, pretty the, decent. The servers just can't cope. <laughs> That's how it is. Um, so let's begin with um, transfer news. But actually, no, let's begin with, to me, a big surprise, which is Frank Lampard is now the manager of Everton. He signed a two-and-a-half-year deal. Um, his first league match is going to be a relegation battle with Newcastle. So it's immediately all on the line. And, well, he did okay at Derby, left early, and I think not so great at Chelsea. So, Nicholas, um, why Frank Lampard? Well, I, I think that um, if you're looking for top quality managers at this point, um, there isn't many out there. Uh, Frank Lampard is one of the available ones. Um, and based on reports, um, the owner had interviewed three, one of which was uh, Duncan Ferguson. I initially thought that Duncan... Uh, could have been given more time, but uh, perhaps the loss to Aston Villa didn't really help his cause. Uh, going back to Frank Lampard, um, this guy's been available for a year now. Um, you know, he's he's come off the Chelsea job. Um, I, I would rate him a 6.10 out, out of his, you know, stint uh, with, with Chelsea because uh, in his first season, he was absolutely superb for that. You know, from, from taking Derby County to the cusp of the Premier League, to then, you know, guiding Chelsea to fourth place and taking them to the FA Cup final uh, was simply an incredible achievement. Um, his second season obviously wasn't the greatest, but I also think that, you know, he struggled to find his footing because of so many players that had come uh, into the club. Uh, and so he had sort of struggled to find a place or rather the right system to fit all the superstars. And knowing Chelsea and how, um, you know, time conscious they are with, with you know, uh, success. Um, Lampard obviously was hard-pressed um, to achieve a certain target in short, such a short span of time. And so I think um, that, um, that that really, while it didn't bode well for him, you know, it ended in, in, in an exit. Um, there were a lot of lessons that he would have taken from there, you know, uh, how to deal with pressure, how to deal with such a demanding owner, you know, and coming to a club and having to perform right away all these qualities, all these lessons, I think, will serve him greatly um, 
for Everton because you have to remember there is no honeymoon period at all at Everton. You just mentioned earlier they have a do or die sort of relegation uh, battle uh, looming against um, Newcastle. So, you know, he's got to get up to speed very fast. Um, and for me, it's it's pivotal that, that Lampard has a great relationship uh, with Bill Kenwright, uh, the chairman of Everton, who's been the soul of, of the club for such a long time. You know, uh, Kenwright knows the club in and out. He knows the system. Um, he's struggling to, to find a place with the fans now. Uh, but Lampard can definitely help his cause. So if both these guys can work together, um, you know, Everton can only progress from here. Oh, okay. So Nicholas feels optimistic for Frank Lampard. Uh, I'm, I'm the host now, so I, from my bully pulpit, I can say things like, I always thought Frank Lampard was an overrated midfielder. So uh, we move on. Uh, speaking of midfielders, Sean, um, another Everton story, Donny van der Beek of your club Manchester United has gone to Everton and he was one of the stars of that magnificent Ajax team hasn't really taken off in uh, Manchester United how come and will he be good for Everton I think the reason why it didn't work out for him at United you have to keep in mind that we signed him last season for a big fee 40 million is no small fee he came in with the, the premise of maybe replacing Pogba at the time but from what we've known, he's not been great in training. And, and Ole did give him his chances at United. You know, he did play cup games, came on as a sub. He had parts of his game where on the ball, he'd be really good. He could create you chances. He could try and get a goal. But off the ball, I think was something that was really poor from him was his positional awareness. The one thing you realize is when Ole was there, we played with two pivots. We had Scott McTominay and we had Fred. Two players who were made to control a game. And you look... At Donny van der Beek, you don't really find a player who can play that role. He says he can play that role. In 5x5 five five with Rio Ferdinand, he mentioned that he could play as a 6, he could play as an 8, he could play as a 10. But you never want to hear that from a player that you sign where he said, I can play many roles. You want to know that I'm comfortable in this one role and I can play it. But the thing is, he never really lived up to that at United. And if I stray off a bit, you look at the players who did well at Ajax, who went into that semi-final in the Champions League. Delict, who went to Juventus. Big club, didn't live up to the expectations. Frankie de Jong went to Barcelona, didn't live up to those expectations. Ziyech went to Chelsea, didn't live up to those expectations. And the same happened to Donny. The chance of him going now to Everton and, and restarting his career and pushing on for that World Cup position, I think it's huge for him. I wish him the best. And the thing is, that the, the sky is, is the limit for him at Everton because if you're going to look for a player that could maybe change your season, it could be him. And this is his opportunity to do it. And... The great thing about Frank Lampard is he works well with youngsters. And I think Donny can still be considered a youngster. Even though he's quite experienced now, I think he can do really well at Everton. But it's only down to him right now. There's so much that's been written about him, you know, not being able to do this and that, that, this and that. So now that he's there, he can prove it, hopefully. But in a word, though, Sean, will he, yes or no? I think he will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of midfielders, we're going to move now to the richest club in the world, Newcastle. Uh, yes, <laughs> I said it right, didn't I? Newcastle United. And uh, they have, uh, they have uh, bought, if that's the right word, they bought uh, a very exciting player, people talking highly about him, Bruno Guimarez. I don't really know that much about Liga, where he's been playing for Lyon. But he's a 24-year-old Brazilian defensive midfielder, which uh, would probably do well because Newcastle have 43 goals against this season, the second worst after Norwich. 
Kishnan, Bruno Grimares, a good signing? Um, Cam, I think he's a magnificent signing. Honestly, I'm a bit surprised that uh, Newcastle have been able to pull this off without any of the bigger clubs trying to hijack the deal. I think he's an exceptional player that will walk into you know, any of the big teams midfield. Um, I, I was just speaking about this in, in, in a show that I was doing for Astro recently when we were talking about the evolution of uh, Brazilian football. It, it's, a, it's a footballing country that's, that's been largely premised upon flair and creativity and expression. But I think in the last 10 years or so, there's, there's this big realisation in Brazil that, uh, that modern football is not just all about flair anymore, that you just can't get away with it when you have individual brilliance, that you need technically uh, astute players, you, you need uh, players who understand uh, systems and tactics. And Bruno Guimaraes is part of that modern young generation of Brazilian footballers um, who is very different from the usual Brazilian footballer. This guy is extremely efficient in possession, which means that he doesn't lose the ball very often. He's highly versatile. He's capable of playing in in, as a defensive midfielder, he can operate as a box-to-box midfielder. He reads the game really well. He dives into tackles. Um, he's got an exceptional passing range as well. At this point in time, he's easily one of the most complete uh, midfielders in Europe. Obviously, there's, there's parts of his game that needs improvement because he's, he's still young. He's 24. But at that age, you give him a couple of years in the Premier League and he will easily become one of the most dependable players. Um, I think there's, you know Newcastle have been associated with a lot of big names, right? There's all these funny memes associating them with players like Kylian Mbappe. And I'm really glad they haven't gone down that route of trying to sign a superstar like Man City did years ago when they signed Robinho after the takeover. I think they've been very efficient and smart in their business so far. And I think Bruno Guimaraes is probably the best thing they could have done for that midfield. He's an in- incredible player, honestly, Cam. And, I'm, and I can't wait to watch him in the Premier League. I think he's going to be a massive hit. But Kish, isn't that a case though? I mean, the, the rest of the team at Newcastle are not fantastic. I mean, they're, not, they're, not, they're Premier League players. If you have one gifted player in a group of not gifted players, are, they, are the expectations too high? He has £6.6 million add-on if, he, if uh, Newcastle stay in the Premier League. Is he going to claim that? Uh, I, I do think they will stay in the Premier League, Cam. And, 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 and here's where I draw the line when it comes to Newcastle. I think it would have been problematic if they went for players that had a massive reputation, that were incredibly established already. I think that's where you run into a bit of a problem because that's what Man City tried to do in the early stages when they signed Robinho before they realised that, hey, you can't really solve problem with one marquee signing. You've got to build a team first. And to build a team, you need components. And Newcastle, to be fair to them, they've done that. I think the acquisition of Chris Wood is is a really good one. He's not the greatest striker on the planet, but he gives you consistent goals in the Premier League. Um, Kieran Trippier is a Premier League proven fullback as well, who will give you additional support down the flanks. They've now, you know, most likely going to sign Brighton's Dan Byrne as well, who's a reliable option at the back. And then there's Bruno Guimaraes. When I say Bruno Guimaraes is an exceptional footballer, I still don't think he's complete yet. I still don't think he's hit his absolute peak yet. So he's getting there and he will at some point. And I think having players like this is what helps Newcastle build a team, not just for the Premier League survival battle, but for them to create sustained progress over the next few years. I must say that I'm not a very big fan of the takeover at Newcastle. I'm very sceptical about it. I've got my fair share of fears about you know uh, foreign ownership coming in and sports washing and all that. But the one thing I will say is that 
I expected a lot worse from them. And so far, they've actually done pretty decently in terms of their transfer business. Well, uh, speaking of um, underplayed signings, uh, Nicholas, I want to ask about Dan Burns. He's not one of the players that has caught my attention too much, but he's uh, he's at Brighton. He's a defender. He's uh, a good signing. I just go back to the point Kish made, um, you know, which which uh, goes in line with the Newcastle uh, signing. They have not been spectacular signings. Um, in the case of Dan Burn, I don't think anyone would have expected him to, you know, uh, or rather expected Newcastle to um, go go in hot pursuit of him because. Uh, from what I read, they initially had a fee of seven million rejected, and they went for a bigger offer. And eventually, Brighton uh, relented. Um, just reading about Dan Burn, he seems to be a, a towering uh, defender, centre back, you know, six foot seven. Uh, so he will add a lot of physicality uh, into the defence, uh, commanding presence, which is what Newcastle need at this point. I think they've been really soft at the back. You know, while they've had a lot of flag. Going forward, uh, with, with St. Alan Maximan, uh, they've, they've conceded a lot of soft goals and uh, the arrival of uh, Dan Byrne would really help them. And another characteristic of Dan Byrne that, that intrigues me is the fact that he's in, uh, been embroiled with a lot of relegation battles, you know, um, looking at his time with Fulham, with Wigan. Um, so these, these are, are sort of experiences that would really help him um, and something that he would be able to relate across to his teammates as well. Um, it's challenging time, but um, a defender like Dan Burn knows about all about you know being embroiled in tough times like this, and um, this is something that Newcastle really need. You got to feel sorry for players like that. Like every season, it's like oh relegation battle again. <laughs> It must be hell. We're going to move on, and I'm, I'm going to uh, be saving up for Sean for um, a sad, bad story from Manchester United. He's sadly nodding already. Uh, but in a moment, we come back here on Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball here on BFM 89.9. And we're talking transfers in the uh, English game, really. But uh, next transfer is uh, maybe the biggest name, uh, the most important one so far. Luis Diaz from Liverpool, sorry, to Liverpool from Porto for 45 million euros. A really impressive transfer. this season, 14 goals and five assists in 18 league matches, plus six for Colombia. Uh, he rejected Spurs, big surprise there, and uh, Klopp's uh, been targeting him, was going to target him for summer, I believe. So what do you think of uh, this signing, Kishnan? Oh, I, I, there's a couple of things that, that hits my head when I look at this signing, right? Firstly, um, I think there's been a, a shift in how Liverpool view their transfer businesses because prior to this, uh, they've always played it safe. They've always focused on on making their transfers uh, very systematic, targeting smaller players and not committing to signing players for large fees if it's not deemed necessary. Um, and, and they've got away with that approach for a very long time because of Jurgen Klopp. But I think Klopp himself has made it very clear to FSG over the years that, look, I like the approach of the club. I like that we are prioritizing signing uh, affordable options and and going down the route of not spending too much money season in, season out. But 
if we're going to stay relevant at the top, if we're going to compete with the biggest boys in Europe, and if we're going to build a have a sustained challenge and presence at the top, then every now and then we need to bite the bullet and invest. Um, and I think that's what they've done with Luis Diaz. I think it's a player that they've monitored for a while. And I love that they showed that bit of edge when Spurs uh, was sort of, you know, closing in on Luis. And um, all of a sudden, Liverpool came out of nowhere to hijack the deal, which apparently left uh, Daniel Levy quite furious on the on the sidelines. I, I love moves like that in football, right? Because it shows hunger, it shows intent. And that's what Liverpool have done with Luis Diaz. As for the player himself, I think he's pretty great. I think it off, he, or he would offer exceptional competition for Sadio Mane down the left flank. He's right-footed, but he primarily operates down the left. Um, he's an inverted winger. And the one thing you will notice about Luis Diaz is those who have been watching Porto and those who will watch him at Anfield in the coming weeks and months, the first thing you will very quickly notice about Luis Diaz is just what a good, good dribbler of the ball is, he is. And and it's dribbling is a it's a skill that we don't see as much in modern football because everything has become, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a sense of perfectionism around football at the moment where you've got to make the right pass. You can't spend too much time on the ball. You've got to to play in a system. It's it's all about that. But Luis Diaz still offers you that bit of a raw flair every now and then with his with his dribbling, and that can inject fear into opposition players. I've seen him do it in the Portuguese league consistently for a big team like Porto. He will take a bit of time to adjust himself to Liverpool, but I have no doubts that he's a wonderful, wonderful signing. Uh, Kishnan, how many hours in the day are there for you to be able to watch all of these uh, matches from around the world? <laughs> it's the only thing I get to do, Cam. I'm privileged. <laughs> okay. Um, before we move on to some uh, breaking bad news, are there any other transfers that you guys have seen that have caught your eye? Um that might be passed by. I must add also that because of Chinese New Year, we've had to pre-record uh, today. So uh, there could be transfers by the time you listen to this out there in Radioland. And the transfer deadline itself is going to be 8 a.m. Malaysia time. So, you know, those last minute ones, we were going to miss now, but we'll pick up on the Friday show. Um, anybody got any uh, that they found interesting? Can I just point out one thing, Cam, very quickly? I think whilst all, all our eyes is focused on the Premier League at the moment, I think bear in mind that Juventus has probably pulled off an incredible signing here because they've let uh, Rodrigo Bentenko go to uh, Spurs. They've also sold uh, Kulusevski, the Swedish uh, wonder kid, to Spurs um, for large fees, bear in mind, both players. Um, and they've only spent $5 million to bring in Dennis Zakaria from Borussia Mönchengladbach. And those, those who have watched the Bundesliga will know just how good Denis Zakaria is. Um, and he's an exceptional signing. He was great for Switzerland at the Euros as well. Um, I think that's a massive, massive coup in the modern transfer market. Uh, five million fees is completely unheard of these days. Nicholas, anything that uh, you would be looking forward to for that, that, those last-minute deadlines? I'm only looking forward to who's Leeds going to sign, but I don't think anything's happening as of now. So, I'm, yeah, yeah. Nothing else interests me as of this point, unless Leeds signs someone, but it's not looking promising. So, uh, I do want to add that um, I, I thought the signing of Adamo Traore to uh, Barcelona was, was an interesting one, um, given the fact uh, that he started, pretty much started his career in, in Barca and now returns there from Wolves. Uh, just as he was warming up at Wolves, um, that, that is an interesting signing and it will remain to see how, how he adapts himself uh, to life in La Liga. 
Uh, and I was under the impression that Barcelona couldn't afford to, weren't not allowed allowed to buy anyone, especially someone like Traore, who you said warming up. He looks magnificent when he's going forward and then, oh, <laughs> at the end. Uh, we're going to move to a bad story. Uh, and this is where Sean, as a Manchester United fan, is going to have to come in. The news has just been coming out that um, young player, uh, Mason Greenwood, 20-year-old, uh, has been arrested, I believe, for over rape and assault allegations. Uh, pictures were posted on social media showing uh, bruising. And he has been, I think, suspended by Manchester United at the time of speaking. Sean, um, can you uh, shed any more light on the situation? I thought about it yesterday when it broke. I think it was like 3, 4 p.m. our time. And in the beginning, I thought of it from a footballing point of view, like a football fan and a United fan. And it it was really upsetting, depressing, because this boy is considered the golden boy of Manchester United. You know, you, you don't want to assume the worst things would happen to him. He has the world at his feet. Pundits talk so highly of him. Coaches talk so highly of him. It was disappointing at first. Then I took some time to think about it from a societal point of view. And I was like, there's no place for things like this in any any sport in the world or a, a, any situation in the world. To me, it's... There's so much evidence going against him right now. The pictures that were posted, the the uh, audio recordings that were posted. And I can't defend something like this. It doesn't matter how much talent you have in the world. You could be at the level of Ronaldo and Messi and Haaland or any of these players, but if you don't have a good character and you don't have a good head on your shoulders, there's no point. I, I got to look past football. I got to look past being a United fan and I have to look at it and say... If it comes to the point where there's so much evidence against him and he's found guilty of all this, United has to do the right thing and terminate his contract. There's there's no other way for me. I don't. There's no defending his actions for what he's done. I am completely with with Sean in saying that if this um this, this situation continues to go against uh, Greenwood, then yeah, United have to make the the right call and and dismiss him because if you look at it from a humanity, from a crime perspective, and also from a, from a corporate perspective, you know, if you are working in a corporation and you get accused and eventually uh, found guilty of, of sexual misconduct and rape, uh, you, you not only uh, get dismissed, uh, off you go to jail, and, and it has to be the same. There cannot be any exceptions. And I'm, and I'm heartened to see that so many of fans out there are in support of, of, the, of the girl, and they are not really using their, their head uh, and their affection towards uh, Greenwood's capabilities on the pitch and trying to defend him, uh, you know, they are they're full in support of the girl which has just been abused. And, you know, uh, humanity uh, seems to have a good sense uh, on their head at this point. Mm. Well, this is a, a continuing story and a, a, a bad story, uh, which um, I hate to have to report on, but it must be done. So uh, in a moment, though, we're going to go to uh, different parts of the world. We're going to go to Africa. We're going to go to South America. And uh, we'll talk um, African Cup Nations and World Cup qualifiers here on Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. Because whilst he's there, it's been very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball, or is it On the Ball? Off the Ball, with myself, uh, Cam Raslan, uh, Kishnan, uh, Nicholas, and Sean. And now we go to Africa, where the African Cup of Nations has moved into, it's about to move into the semi-final stage. The quarterfinals have just happened. 
And for me, one of the sto- one of the stories was um, at the beginning of this tournament, Sadio Mane was sort of jokingly saying, "I look forward to seeing." Mohamed Salah in the final, and it looks like it could well be that final. Egypt beat Morocco in the quarterfinal 2-1, with Salah scoring one and assisting one. And uh, Kishnan, are they looking like the red-hot favourites now? I, I think it's very easy to to play the narrative of uh, Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah. Obviously, that would be the, the, from a narrative, from a storytelling point of view, that would be the dream final, right? Um there's obviously this well-talked-about rivalry at club level as well between Mane and Salah, um, which I don't know if it has been resolved because both individuals are said to be very obsessed about their own goal-scoring numbers, which is probably the quality that makes them you know, absolutely world-class. But it also that, that bit of selfishness can sometimes disrupt Liverpool in, in games. And that bit of rivalry um, being translated on the biggest stage of African football, I think that's the story that everybody would definitely like to hear. But I honestly think so far, the most impressive team at the African Cup of Nations has to be Cameroon. I, I, I think the, 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 the football that we've, we've seen them play, I think the strikers that have put on an incredible show, everybody talks about Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane, uh, but you've got to talk about Vincent Abubakar, who plays for Cameroon and plays, I think, in the in the Saudi Professional League, if I'm not mistaken. He's been brilliant at the tournament so far, five goals. And then you've got uh, Leon striker Carl Toko Ekambi, who's been great as well and played a fundamental role in helping um, Cameroon get to the semifinals. I think... There, there could be an upset here when it comes to the Cameroon's-Egypt uh, game. I think um, w- w- with the backing of the home fans, I think the, the form that Cameroon have shown in the tournament so far, um, there's, there's so much to admire about the team. And honestly, I genuinely think they play the best football in this tournament so far. Uh, Nicholas, can I ask you, well, in, a, in a short while we're going to talk about South American uh, World Cup qualifiers, but uh, when I was watching the highlights of Senegal 3 Equatorial Guinea won. I was really impressed by the by the play. And I'm thinking, you know, in South America, Brazil and Argentina are through. They've qualified. But when you start going down, I wonder if the quality of football in the in the other nations can match the depth of quality in African football. We haven't seen obviously much of uh, African football, um, you know, and the the if you look at past winners, uh, Egypt have dominated. Um, they're the most winners. Uh, they haven't won in a long time, though. Um, and I think that this is the perfect time uh, for African football to be highlighted because it usually gets sort of swept under the carpet. It usually takes place in January when the Premier League is in full swing and all that. Um, but at this point, uh, it's pretty much the only big tournament that has been going on. And um, the... The, with the star players and you know uh, everyone in action, uh, you have the likes of Salah, Mane, and and a lot of other players which have the potential to really you know showcase their talents on on this stage and in this particular year uh, when there is isn't much going on football, um, I think this is the best time for South African football to shine. Yeah. Uh, African football, South African football Sorry, has, has uh, had African trouble shining football. for a long yeah. time. <laughs> uh, Sean, I'm going to test your knowledge now. We're going off to South America because uh, 
yeah, I mean, African Cup of Nations has really been grabbing the headlines, um, which is good to see. And you'd be kind of you'd be hard pressed to know that actually there have been World Cup qualifiers going on in South America. As I say, Brazil and Argentina are through, which is good because it's inconceivable a World Cup without those two. But you have um, Ecuador and Peru third and fourth right now, and kind of previous powerhouses Uruguay and Colombia behind them, in with a chance. Uh, have you been uh, f- keeping up with the uh, South American qualifiers, Sean? And has anything caught your eye? I've been keeping up to it in terms of just highlights at the moment because I am a Brazil fan. I've been a Brazil fan since 06. Dude, you are so, such a glory hunter. This no, is, no, no, it's, no. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, oh, wow. You need, you need to understand, like, my hero <laughs> in football as a kid was Ronaldinho. So ever since then, it's like, it's, it's built, built from there. But the thing that's caught my eye, I mean, you expect the likes of Argentina and Brazil to make it into the World Cup, you know, the, you just expect it. But the one that's shocking to me so far is the fact that Uruguay has a chance of actually missing out on the World Cup. Right now, they, they, it, it, it hasn't happened since 2006. They've got a new coach in right now as well, and they have, they have a big mountain to climb. And if they don't make it to the World Cup, I think it's the last chance we'll have of seeing the likes of uh, uh, Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez. And that would be a huge thing. It would be as big as seeing England miss out on the Euros a few years back. I think it was 2012 or something like that. So Yeah, they missed out on the, the Euros. So to me, having Uruguay miss the World Cup would be huge. But I think they still have an outside chance. Peru and Colombia is interesting because they're only separated by goal difference at this moment in time. So depending on how the games go, there's a huge chance that either one of them could make it or neither one of them could make it. So I would, I like, I'm very interested to see how it goes from here. Yeah. And Kishan, I'm going to take you uh, north of the border, way north of the border. It's not in our running order, so I'm just throwing this one at you. Uh, what caught my eye just before we came on was that uh, Canada beat the United States uh, USMNT, men's national team, they like to call themselves, 2-0. And it look, it's looking like Canada's becoming a new power in the, um, in the CONCACAF zone. Have you been uh, watching this at all and uh, you know USA has got some good players but they seem to be failing to come up to expectations yeah I, I think there's honestly a lot to be excited about when it comes to Canadian football let's not forget that their women's team won the Olympic gold medal if I'm not mistaken um, and and, and um, if I'm not mistaken a couple of their players also play for PSG in the uh, PSG's female team um, at, at the moment and that's the women's team. But even in the men's team, there's a lot to be excited about. Obviously, the biggest name to come out of Canada in the last few years is uh, Alfonso Davies. Um, he wasn't involved in that in the win over the national team. I think he's still recovering from that minor heart issue that he picked up earlier this month that has kept him sidelined at Bayern Munich as well. But but it's not just about Alfonso Davies, right? You, you look through the team and, and all of a sudden, there's a host of them that are playing abroad, like Frank Stirring plays for for SV Horn in Austria. And then you've got Jonathan David, who is probably the second most impressive Canadian player at the moment. He's been absolutely brilliant for, for Lille in, in, in Liga. Jonathan David is a, is a massive, massive name too. So you, you, when you look at the level of talent that is coming out of, of Canadian football at the moment, there's a lot to be excited about. And they're doing this consistently. They've beaten U.S. a few times now, even in the last 12 months or so. And U.S. just seem to have a fundamental problem with just getting all their talents to gel together. Because even when you look through the U.S. national team's list, they also have a lot of big names who are breaking through. Um, from, from Serginio Dest, who plays at Barcelona, 
Christian Pulisic, who's a massive, massive name playing at Chelsea. And then they've got uh, Zach Stefan, who plays for Man City as a, as a goalkeeper. So they've got a lot of big names too, but they just have a bit of a problem in terms of getting them all to play together in the right system. Canada, on the other hand, seem to have the perfect momentum. And the most exciting thing for me about Canadian football at the moment is that they're all young and they're all changing lives because at the moment, football is growing tremendously in Canada at the grassroots. More and more kids are picking up the sport, watching the success of you know their, their counterparts in the women's team, in the men's team. And this bodes well for them ahead of the 2026 World Cup, which is going to be hosted in Canada, Mexico, and the United States. I think by the time we hit 2026, a lot of these players will be at their absolute peak and we're going to see a Canada side that is that, that is really going to catch everyone by surprise. There's a lot to be excited about. Wow. Okay. So uh, Canada's going to win the World Cup. You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what you said, Kishan. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying what you said. Um, I'm just saying there's, there's a lot to be excited about. That's all. Okay, Nicholas. Now I know you don't get excited about anything other than Leeds United. You just said so yourself. But uh, I mean, uh, international football. That's, I, I really love international football. It actually is. It is actually my favourite. And I know uh, Brad Friedel. He he uh, he he was with Leeds, wasn't he? And he he's he played for America. So you must have some interest in it. Has anything caught your eye in the international scene uh, in in Africa and indeed in uh, in South America? Actually, I have. Um, I've been reading up a little bit about um, Salah, you know, after his, his goal scoring, um, you know, an overall contribution uh, in yesterday's win. And I think in the larger context, uh, Mohamed Salah could become uh, more than just a footballer uh, for not only Egypt, but also Africa. Um, and his, his influence and, and his, his uh, whole uh, charisma could transcend beyond football. If I'm looking at, at Mo Salah, I, I sort of look back at, at how the likes of Didier Drogba and Samuel Ito, you know, uh, not only transform uh, football in their respective country, but also as in the continent as a whole. Now, uh, Didier Drogba, for instance, when he was playing for Ivory Coast, I think um, it was back in 2005, and they had just beaten Sudan uh, to qualify uh, for the World Cup, if I'm not mistaken, for the first time. And instead of basking in that celebration, Didier Drogba actually sent out a plea um, for civil war to cease. He actually had, had, had done that and it worked. Civil, <laughs> civil there, there wasn't any war anymore, you know. Ceasefire just ceased um, for, for such a long period and, and he brought peace and he brought freedom to that country. Uh, and if you look at Samuel Ito, you know, um, who is the godfather of African football, you know, one of the greatest players ever to grace uh, the game and, and the transformation that he had done for, for Cameroon, um, not only from a footballing sense, but also from a societal sense um, in helping the sport grow. And now, you know, wanting to change and, and make the sport become better as the president of the uh, Cameroon Football Association. And, and you have Salah now, you know, uh, a player at the peak of his prowess, you know, uh, dying to achieve uh, success, uh, you know, and help uh, Egypt win uh, this African Cup of Nations after almost a decade. But not only that, you know, I think there's so much more to, to Salah, you know, uh, in terms of how he's helped the sport, of how he's helped uh, families, of, of how he's helped government 
um, during tough times, uh, you know, in overcoming COVID um, and also, you know, just helping them to see sport and football, not only from a footballing perspective, but from a humanitarian perspective. And I think if Salah goes on to achieve um, um, the, the, the biggest success in helping uh, Egypt to win uh, this African Cup, uh, then he could he could be on the same pedestal as uh, Didier Drogba and also Samuel Ito. Hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, yeah, here on uh, off the ball, we we t- we take a the the bigger perspective here the wider perspective so th- thanks for that uh, nicholas and in a moment uh, we're going to be uh, moving on to well soon we're going to be lead uh, readers readers listeners questions here on off the ball on bfm 89.9 captain leader legend off the ball on bfm 89.9 and we're back on the last part of Off the Ball, where uh, we're going to be moving on to, well, this is now your uh, Malaysian football update, weekly update. And Kishanen, is there anything happening in the Malaysian game? I mean, t- transfers are ongoing as we speak. Uh, there's a lot of exciting ones. I think most uh, Premier League fans out there will be excited to know that Anthony Marshall's brother uh, has signed for Pahang. He'll be playing for Pahang. I think he's a centre-back. Um, at the same time, um, Johor Darul Takzim have signed a striker from the Serie A, uh, Fernando Forestieri, who played for Udinese uh, last season. Previously, uh, Sheffield Wednesday as well. So he'll be playing in Johor Colors. Um, th- there's a really exciting Spanish Malian player that has joined JDT as well. I've been watching him in preseason games. He looks very exciting. He's got a lot of trickery in his bags. He goes by the name of uh, Musa Sidibe. But putting aside all the transfer, I think one of the biggest stories in Malaysian football uh, over the last week was the premiere of Sampai Mati Kuala Lumpur, which is the title of a documentary um, that was produced by Astro Arena. They followed Kuala Lumpur City over the course of an entire season last year, um, from the you know, first training session all the way till the end of the season when Kuala Lumpur won the Malaysia Cup for the first time in... I, I can't even remember how many years. I think it's over over 20 or 30 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and the entire story has been pieced together in an eight-episode documentary that will be airing on Astro Arena, I think, 1st of February onwards, um, every Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and, and I've had the privilege um, of watching five episodes so far. And it's honestly one of the best things I've ever watched about Malaysian football. I think mm. there's so much of insight. I think the level of storytelling is incredible. I think we are given a never-before-seen glimpse into how things operate um, in Malaysian football. And, and there's a lot of incredible sub-small stories within the larger story as well. The premiere took place last last week, I think, um, at, at, the, at, at Pavilion, at Dadi Cinema, and... and you know, everyone from KL came down for the premiere. Um, everybody watched uh, from the team, celebrated the first episode, and you could see the level of excitement for it. And honestly, I can't wait for, for everyone to watch it and to, to see the re- reaction they'll get. Because documentaries like this are popular in Europe. You get all or nothing Man City, all or nothing Leeds United. You've seen Netflix dive deep into uh, the story of Sunderland. But for the first time, it's been done in Malaysia, um, and it's done for a team that had such a romantic story um, in 2021. Oh, well, um, so KL win the cup at the end. So a bit of a spoiler alert there, you should have said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
Hey, Nicholas, have you have you watched it? And uh, so they, they win. So it's not Sunderland till I die, where they get relegated like each season. <laughs> um, and uh, have you watched it? And also, I just suddenly thought, what are, what's a really good uh, football documentary now that we're on this that we could uh, recommend to people? Uh, to answer your first question, Cam, I think the first episode will be out on Astro tomorrow, sampai mati Kuala Lumpur, and I I can't wait for it as well. Uh, I had the honor of uh, speaking to the KL team uh, just before uh, they had won the Malaysia Cup, um, and you know that was just a um, a face to face interview, um, and it was very much on the surface. Um, but like Kish mentioned, there is so much of uh, things uh, that goes on at the back. Uh, Uh, behind the scenes stuff uh, that you know we are about to to, to witness. Um, speaking of interviews, interesting interviews. Uh, there's one released on Neymar uh, that's out on Netflix. I hadn't had the chance to watch it, but yeah, I think uh, that that would be a cool one to catch. Hmm. I watched on Netflix. There's a there's a really good one about um, kind of street football, French street football, and how how important it is for the French game. Um, where they play in small concrete parks and you sort of you you realize where the likes of uh Mahrez gets his skill uh because you have to work in really tight areas um so I can't remember its name but that's a good one uh, okay well I will definitely watch that then um and as as I said I'll just try to ignore the fact that I know what the ending is so uh we're going to move now to uh a most exciting new Uh, section in the show it is listeners questions where listeners have over the years been sending letters to uh bfm i know they send letters it's weird we've got the internet now and yet they still post things and uh so none of the pundits know any of the the questions i'm about to to lay on them but uh, i'd like to get their honest uh responses so we have one here from amir from uh, pjs2 who's written, uh, written a very long letter where he's really talking about his um, heartache over the breakup with his girlfriend. And he's, he's also asked us to, um, to not mention his name. So let's call him John. And uh, he's asking a question, which I think is on uh, a lot of people's minds. Des, he mentions, I think Des Corkill is right. VAR is broken. And yet, what is the solution? And so I'm going to ask you, Sean, do you think that VAR is bad, is a problem? And can you think of uh, tweaks and solutions to it or, or outright getting rid of it? I don't think VAR is a bad thing. I mean, if you you look at video assistant referees right, in other sports like cricket or, or tennis, it's there to help the officials. It's there to help. The main question there is there to help the system. So I think the number one thing that we don't know, at least in football, is What are the exact rules? For example, the, the offside rule changed recently or, or the, the uh, you need clear guidelines as to how VAR works. And then once you have a clear guideline, at least your fans know, right? Your fans know, the people who are in the stadium know, you don't have to sit there and wait six to eight minutes to know what a, the, the call is going to be. And the referees need to be very transparent as well. You can't have one day where, you know, a slight bit of your toe is sticking out and that's an offside. And then the next day, it's not an offside. You need transparency there. I don't think VAR on its own is the issue. I think it's getting the people who are handling it to, to, to understand what is right and what's wrong and making sure there's a the consistency there. So VAR is there, supposed to help, there, is there to help people, but the referees are not making it a lot easier by, by making different calls every week. Hmm. hmm. Uh, consistency, that's all we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, yeah, I can't stand it when people start shouting about consistency because it, <laughs> it, it, it's a human game. People are inconsistent. You make mistakes. Uh, Kishnan, I have a letter here from Cynthia from Moi. Uh, Moi is actually outside of the uh, BFM uh, range, but somehow she's listening. And she's asking about uh, financial problems. Uh, Barcelona, she says, is in financial straits. And it's looking like uh, other teams from lower leagues are in big financial problems. Is this going to be a story moving forward that's going to happen more and more where clubs are in financial pro- problems? Um, it certainly will, Cam. Um, it's, it's one of the heartbreaking truths of modern football and the faster we acknowledge it. And I, I, I don't even know how to solve it, but I suppose acknowledging that the problem exists is a way to start, right? Because at the moment, I think a lot of us are very... Um, dismissive about the issue. A lot of us buy into the need for clubs to spend big. You see, you know, fan bases of some of the biggest clubs in Europe putting pressure on their club when they don't spend the money without realizing that that level of expenditure is what's fundamentally hurting the entire football ecosystem. Uh, The one area in Europe that has still somewhat got a bit of it protected is the Bundesliga. And it's why I have a very soft spot for it. And the only reason it's got it protected to some extent is because in the Bundesliga until today, you've still got the 50 plus one rule, which means that um, you need at least 51% of the club to be owned by members or in other words, uh, fans. And only the other 49% can be owned by um, corporate entities or, or rich businessmen and out there. And, and I think by doing that, you see clubs like Borussia Dortmund preserving ticket prices all through the years. You see so many clubs that are small, uh, that have smaller fan bases, being able to compete with bigger clubs as well, like the likes of Freiburg and Union Berlin, for example. But everywhere else in Europe, um, I think the, the, the football pyramid has been severely affected, right? You look at England. How is it that clubs like Liverpool can go out and spend 40-odd million on Luis Diaz in January while a club like Derby County, which three years ago were competing for a spot to get promoted to the Premier League, are you know battling survival, are battling existence, are fighting to stay relevant, fighting to exist. I think stuff like that just doesn't make sense. Um, and and the problem is that the longer we stay dismissive about it, I think the problems like this will will forever continue to exist, especially in a in a post COVID world where. Um, teams are being hurt left, right and centre and, and we still don't know how long the COVID problem will persist, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty around there as well. Um, it's it's honestly a problem that I don't know how to fix um, because it runs very, very deep. Um, but I'm pretty sure that not dismissing it and acknowledging the existence of it is a very important start. Mm. Uh, and uh, finally, our final question is, uh, I think, Nicholas, you have to answer this one. It's from a listener called CK from uh, SS2. And he's asking, he's saying uh, he's thinking of becoming a Leeds United, lifelong Leeds United fan. And he's wondering, is he doing the right thing? Does Leeds United have a future? Come on board, man. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you haven't, if you haven't, if you haven't made any major decisions, this is the one you need to make right now. Full stop. Yeah, but, yeah, but is he is he looking forward to a, a lifetime of heartache and kind of uh, bouncing between leagues, or, or, or I mean, is he going to see himself, you know, cheering on as as Leeds United lift the Champions League one day? 
Yeah, I, I don't think that that dream dream is too far fetched. I think the the worst is uh, behind Leeds. Um, the the lessons uh, that that Leeds as a club has had to go through um, has now been a worldwide uh, lesson for football. Uh, you know, uh, from from spending frivolously to going down to the depths of League One. You know, to 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 renting goldfishes for twenty pounds a week. You know, these are stories that that you wouldn't have heard anywhere. You know, in any corner of the footballing world, and uh, it's it's been a heartache for twenty years. Uh, but I think the lessons and the hardship and the journey that uh, us Leeds fans have had to go through uh, will also serve a lot of clubs well. You know, in terms of how they spend in terms of how they approach uh, their business module. And again, it goes back to the FFP as well, you know. But elites, uh, in terms of how not to spend frivolously, this is one of the biggest lessons. And I think once we have already surpassed that, now we are at a point of stability and now we are at a point of rebuilding. Um, it's it, The only way is up. And I, and I don't see, uh, I don't, in fact, I don't see any other clubs, you know, uh, going through that, that that same process again. If you look at Newcastle, uh, they're not they're not doing that at all. Um, well, and I think a lot of them have, well, well, they're not they're not spending extravagantly on, on big names, you know, throwing throwing massive monies around. I don't think um, uh, clubs will, will continue to do that, especially in, in this in this COVID era where where money is always one of the biggest factors. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in short, um, come to Leeds. We have a huge fan base in Malaysia. We do more than to welcome you with open arms. Wow, huge fan base. That's you, Arvind, and now CK. And several other thousands <laughs> more. I can oh, thousands. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so uh, become a Leeds United fan. And next week, we're going to talk about becoming a... Uh, actually, Keish, what are you? I've, I've never worked it out. You're Manchester United, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, though, at this point. Uh, and Sean as well. That's so boring. Manchester United is so, so boring. I, I, I can't... I can't I'm, we're going to edit this out. Okay. So, um, well, thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. And thank you also to our three pundits, Sean Mahotra. Hey, thank you, everyone. Have a good Chinese New Year again. And uh, Kishnan Sundaresan, you can now uh, start up your engine and move out of the car park. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone. Happy Chinese New Year. Enjoy the holidays. And thank you, Nicholas Anil. Thanks, Cam. Enjoy the holidays. Yes, and Gongsi Fachai to all our listeners and see and see you all on uh, Friday uh, here on, well, that's going to be, we are off the ball, BFM 89.9. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.